down. This is group one. This is group number two. This will be group number three. They sing, I adore. That group sings, and this group comes in at the beginning. They go, ah. Uh, balcony, you sing with this group down here. Don't leave you out. Group one, group two, group three. Let's do it. First group with me, sing, ah. Uh, Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let's do that. We know how that goes. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Let ushers come forward to receive our offering, and as they do so, let me just uh, make mention of a couple of things. Of course, next, uh, this coming Friday night, Saturday night, we have the uh, program, This Is America, that's at 7 o'clock, 
and then next Sunday night at 6.30, so you'd want to forget that. Also, we need somebody uh, that will drive the van next Sunday night. Uh, Brother Glenn usually drives it, but he is in the program, so we need someone that will help him out next Sunday night. So if you can do that for us, see me or see Glenn, we'd appreciate it so much. Let's pray now. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to give you, give to you. You have done great things for us, and in return, we want to express our gratitude and one way we do is through our giving. So continue to open our hearts now to what you have for us in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.
the dark of the midnight have I hid my face while the storms howl above me and there's no hiding place in the crash of the thunder precious Lord hear my cry keep me safe till the storm
for these lights, but you pray because this song is really, really a blessing to my heart. We pray it's a blessing to yours.
be seated. It's a hope until we get it right, so we're going to come back and sing again. If y'all don't know who this is, these are my two aunts. And we're beginning to feel paranoid. Yeah, they should. <laughs> this is an old, old song that goes back a long ways. He'll hold my hand.
you enjoy that, say amen. That's not too bad for a blind lady and, and then one that, well, Sylvia, she said, I've been here all day. My hair looks awful. I said, I noticed that. I said, <laughs> but I said, I thought you'd been here all week. Amen. That's good. <laughs> Sylvia, you know, she's the one that always acts like, I don't want to get up there and want everybody. You know she's wanting up here every minute. She's <laughs> wanting to be up here in front of everybody every minute, whatever there. So, amen. Sylvia's our red heifer, and you always got to have one in the church. <laughs> That's right. Amen. My job as a pastor is to tell you the truth, so that's what I'm trying to do, amen. Take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I've enjoyed the good music tonight. I've enjoyed all the different ones getting together, and I like just see folks use their talents and get together like that and sing. What a blessing. Let's stand as we honor the reading of His Word. We're making our way through 1 Corinthians, and we are nearing the end of the book, and we're in this great resurrection chapter. And tonight I want us to look at verses 20 through 28, and I want us to think about this thought. There ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Look at verse 20 of our text. The scripture said, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, By man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, Then shall the Son also himself be subjected unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's pray. And tonight, let's continue making our way through this most exciting chapter in the Bible. And let's learn a little bit about what God is telling us about the future and a wonderful promise tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for bringing us together, and we do thank you, Lord, that you are constantly watching over our lives. You hold our hand through life, and then even at the end of life, you do not fail us nor depart us, but we thank you, Lord, that you are always there. I thank you, Lord, for the things that we know about you and the things that we believe in, and we know them and believe them because you've given them to us in your word. So we thank you for the Word of God. And so we ask you now that you might bless our study of the Word of God tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'd make us mindful of the fact that it is your Word 
And for that reason, it's very important that we listen to what you have to say. And I know that we'll face you again one day with how we listen, for not only are we admonished in the Scripture to take heed to what we listen to, but how we listen to it. So I pray tonight that you'd speak to us, and I pray you would encourage our hearts tonight through this wonderful truth about the future resurrection of our bodies. For it is in the name of the Lord Jesus we ask these things, and for his sake we pray, amen. A few years ago when my family and I were visiting Philadelphia, we went down to the historical district, and we toured all the historical sites there. We went through Independence Hall where the Declaration of Independence was signed. Saw the Liberty Bell and all of those sites around there that are cherished in our nation's history. But I confess to you, the thing that excited me the most was the epitaph that I read on the grave of Benjamin Franklin. His grave is just a little bit down, just a down about a block away from Independence Hall. And when I read his tombstone and the epitaph that is on there, an epitaph that he wrote himself, it excited me. And this is what it says. It says, The body of Benjamin Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents worn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. Yet the work itself shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and a more beautiful edition, corrected and amended by its author. I like that. Because what Franklin was talking about and referring to was the future resurrection of the body of every believer. When I think about the future, there's a lot of things about the future that thrills my heart. But I know of nothing that thrills me any more than to know that one of these days, there is going to be a resurrection of every believer's body. As a popular song of a few years past put it, one of these days we're going to get up, get up, get up, get up out of the ground for there ain't no grave going to hold my body down. For you see, the Bible tells us that there is going to be a great getting up morning for every child of God. Well, in our last study in verses 12 through 19, we saw that there were some in Paul's day that did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the believer. But yet Paul declares that if there is no resurrection of the believer, then there are serious implications involved. Because if the believer's body will not be resurrected, it would mean that Christ had not risen from the dead. And he's very emphatic. For you notice in verse 13, Paul said, If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And he emphasized it again in verse 16. For if the dead rise not, then is not risen. Christ raised. And we saw in our last study that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then there are serious, serious, very serious consequences. Verse 14 tells us that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. He tells us in verse 14 and in verse 17 that our faith is in vain. He tells us in verse 15 that everybody that preaches the message of a resurrected Christ is a false witness. They're a deceiver. They're a liar. He tells us in verse 17 that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. He tells us that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then every person that has died has perished. And he also tells us in verse 19 that if Christ was not raised from the dead, that every one of us tonight are to be pitied. But after telling us what it would mean if Christ had not been raised from the dead, 
In verse 20, Paul boldly and assuredly states, but now is Christ risen from the dead. Paul is proclaiming he's alive. Paul is proclaiming Christ has risen from the dead. And he wants to emphasize that, that Christ has been resurrected. And are you glad for that tonight? Say amen. But then after telling us what it would mean if Christ had not been raised from the dead, after reminding us that, yes, he is alive, now he begins to tell us what it means seeing that he has been raised from the dead. And he begins to tell us in verse 20 that because Christ has been raised from the dead, then one of these days the believer is going to experience a resurrection himself. I think about something E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds, as many of you know, wrote many little books on prayer. And his books are still published today, but there was one little book. It didn't get a lot of uh, distribution, wasn't well known, but a little book that he wrote entitled The Glory of His Resurrection. And in the book, he makes, makes these, these, gives us these words. He said, hope throws its rich luster over the night of the tomb, and it thrills with deathless joy the heart where the resurrection of Christ has been realized. And he says we are to come out of the grave because Jesus came out of the grave. And our tombs will be empty of our bodies because Joseph's new tomb on the third morn was empty of his body. What was he inbounds telling us? He's telling us that because Christ was raised from the dead, then one day we shall be raised from the dead. Jesus stated in John 14, 19, because I live, ye shall live also. And he said to a family brokenhearted, the family of Lazarus at the tomb there in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, what did Jesus mean? What was Jesus saying to us? He was telling us and simply declaring that there ain't no grave going to hold our bodies down. I want to remind you tonight that if Jesus Christ does not come in our lifetime, and every one of us in this room has to face the appointment that we call death, that I want to remind you that one of these days, our bodies that will be buried in a grave somewhere is going to be resurrected. All of our loved ones tonight that we have had to say goodbye to in this life, and we have had to carry their beloved bodies out to their final resting place in this life, I want you to know there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will raise their bodies from the dead. In other words, there ain't no grave going to hold the body of the believer in the ground because Christ rose again, we shall be resurrected as well. Well, saying all that, look at the text, and let me point out three things that the text says to my heart tonight. For one thing, I see that it is a guaranteed resurrection. When the Bible talks about the believer's resurrection, we find that it is a guaranteed resurrection. You see, in our text, Paul is informing those that did not believe that the bodies of the believers would be resurrected, that yes, one day there would be a resurrection of the believer's body. He not only tells them that, but furthermore, he makes it very clear that the, the resurrection, the believer's body, is a fact that is guaranteed. It's not a matter that is possible. It's much more than possible. He said it's a fact you can depend on. It is a guaranteed matter. And he explains to us that Christ's own resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. 
He tells us beginning in chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 15, that Christ, his own resurrection, is the guarantee of our own. Now notice what he has to say in verse 20 and 21 about Christ's resurrection. For one thing, he talks about and emphasizes the power of Christ's resurrection. The power of Christ's resurrection. I think about something Paul said in Philippians 3. And it was really the expression of his heart, what he longed for in life, what he desired in life. And there Paul said in Philippians 3.10, he expressed his desire that I may know him. And not only know him, but also know the power of his resurrection. In other words, Paul saw the resurrection as a powerful matter historically. He saw the resurrection as a powerful matter eternally. And he also saw the resurrection as a powerful matter personally. You notice what he said in verse 20. He said, but now is Christ risen from the dead. He wants to emphasize Christ is alive. But in doing so, he is emphasizing the power of his resurrection. For example, you focus upon the two words is risen in that statement in verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead. You see those words, Christ is risen, those are in the perfect tense indicating that the resurrection of Christ is a historical event in the past, but yet the effect of that event is still being felt today. Paul would say, I want you to understand something. Christ has been raised from the dead. That is a historical fact. But I also want you to understand that the effects of that event are still being felt at this very hour. You realize tonight it's been almost 2,000 years, maybe 2,000 years ago since Jesus Christ rose from the dead? It's been nearly 2,000 years since Christ was raised from the dead. But tonight, even in this very day, the power of his resurrection is still being felt. Say, what do you mean? Every time someone gets saved by the grace of God, you are seeing the effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every time someone gets born in the family of God, you're seeing the power of his resurrection and the effects of that power even in this day. You look around this room tonight, and in this room there are people whose lives have been totally transformed and totally changed. Many of you, before you got saved, had no room for God. You had no time for God. You had no desire for God. But now, your whole life is just centered around eternal things. You cannot divorce eternal things from your daily existence. It's just your life. Now, what made that drastic reversal in your life? I'll tell you what it is. It is the power of Christ's resurrection. Jesus Christ is alive. He is alive in his resurrection, and the power of that resurrection is still being felt today. I was reading the other day about the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb of the Lord. And I was reading about someone said the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb of Christ was a stone or a wheel of granite, eight feet in diameter and one foot thick. And they said that stone rolled into a groove would weigh more than four tons. Well, I think you would agree with me that would take something of great power and strength to roll that stone away. But the interesting thing about the tomb is not the power that was without the tomb. What is amazing is the power that was in the tomb. 
And that was Christ who rose again from the dead. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the effect of that resurrection is still being felt today. It is the power of his resurrection. I want you to know tonight, Jesus Christ is alive. He's not dead, he's alive. And there is the power of his resurrection. But look in verse 20. Not only does he talk about and emphasize the power of his resurrection, but second of all, the pledge of his resurrection. For notice what verse 20 says. We read in verse 20 that Christ has become the first fruits of them that slept. You look down in verse 23, Jesus is called Christ the first fruits. Now, the word first fruits comes from two words put together, from a word meaning uh, the beginning and a preposition from meaning put together meaning from the beginning. So when you talk about Christ, the first fruits, you're talking about something from the beginning. And it's a word that is associated with the Jewish sacrificial system. You're familiar with it. In those days, the first fruits would be uh, the first of their flocks. It would be the first of their harvests. And they would bring the first of their harvest as a sacrifice to God to express their gratitude to God. It was an action that consecrated the entire flock or the entire harvest and not only expressed their thanksgiving for what God had given them, but also it expressed their faith in the future harvest. In those days, they didn't have the ability to sow seed as we do, a large quantity in a short period of time. So they would sow down one row and work the fields. And so where they started sowing would be the first thing that would come up. And when that come up, they would take that and offer it as a sacrifice to God. And it was to express gratitude to God and faith in the harvest that would follow. Now listen to me. When the Bible speaks about Christ as the first fruits. It is speaking of Christ being the guarantee of more to come. Just like when they'd bring the first of the flock or the first of the fruits of the field and offer it to God, that was only symbolic of that which was going to come. And when the Bible speaks about Christ being our first fruits, it is speaking of Him as being the first in a long line of others that would follow in His train. In other words, His bodily resurrection was the pledge and the guarantee that others would go, were going to be resurrected just like him. Now, I want you to understand tonight, when you think about the resurrection of Christ, not only are the effects of that resurrection still felt today, but when Jesus Christ got up out of the grave, it was a guarantee and a pledge that one day many others were going to get up out of the grave just like him. Now, you look in the Bible, you'll find that Christ was not the first person raised from the dead. You go back in the Old Testament, you'll find people raised from the dead. During the ministry of Jesus, there were people raised from the dead. But what is so distinct about Christ's resurrection is that everybody else that had been raised from the dead died again. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and he never died again. He's living forever. And when the Bible talks about being raised, and he is the pledge, the first fruits, the guarantee that one day our bodies are going to be raised from the ground, and when they're raised from the ground, we'll never die again, but live forevermore. You notice in verse 20, he talks about those that slept. The word slept there simply speaks of those that have died. You read in verse 21, for since by man came death. Literally, death came through a man. And we're familiar with the story. We know how death came through man. God had said to Adam, he said, you needed the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but thou shalt not eat of it. 
For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And Adam disobeyed God, and he ate of the fruit, and he died. Adam died immediately in the spirit. He died spiritually. He was separated from God. Eventually, he died physically. For Genesis 5, 5 said that all the days of Adam were 930 years, and he died. God said, you'll die if you eat of the fruit. And he died. He died. Jesus Christ, very God, became man. And as a man, he died. As a man, he was buried. But as a man, he was raised from the dead, and he was the pledge that many more were going to experience the same kind of resurrection from the dead. It's a guaranteed resurrection. Are you listening to me? One of these days, the bodies of your loved ones are going to get up out of the ground. And if we die before he comes, you mark it down. It's guaranteed. You can put this in your pipe and smoke it. We are going to get out of the ground. It's a guaranteed resurrection. Can I get an amen there? Socrates, the renowned, renowned Greek philosopher, he drank the poison hemlock and he laid down to die. And some of his friends said to him, shall we live again? And Socrates said to them, I hope so, but no man can know. And I say to Mr. Socrates, as wise as you were, you were absolutely wrong. It is not hoping so. It is not wondering so. I know so. We shall live again. Because Jesus is the first fruits, the pledge, and the guarantee of our own resurrection. It's like the old timers put it, there's going to be a great getting up morning. It's a guaranteed resurrection. But look at something else he talks about. Not only is it a guaranteed resurrection, but also it's a group resurrection. If you notice in verse 23, or rather verse 22, we read that all die. And you also read that all shall be made alive. All shall be made alive. Now, all. I don't understand a whole lot, but I do know what all means. When the Bible says all will die, that means all. And when it says that all shall be made alive, that means all shall be made alive. In other words, the Scripture is telling us that everybody is going to die. The only exception to that is those that are living when He comes. But it, it also not only tells us that everybody's going to die, but he tells us that everybody's going to be raised. Now, when he talks about all, he's taking in everybody. Now, follow me closely tonight. When he says that all are going to be raised or all are going to die and all are going to live again, he's taking in everybody. He's taking in every saved person, and he's also taking in every lost person. He's telling us there's going to be a resurrection of everybody. Both those that are saved and unsaved, everybody's going to be resurrected. But here's the point. Not everybody is going to be resurrected in the same group or at the same time. But you look here, and let me explain what I'm talking about. You notice in verse 22, first of all, how God recognizes each group. Notice in verse 22. For as in Adam, put a circle around the word, words in Adam, all die. Even in Christ shall all be made alive. Put a circle around in Christ. When God looks at the human race, He sees us in one of two groups. He sees us as either in Adam or He sees us as in Christ. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your vocation is. It doesn't matter whether you're upper class, middle class, or lower class. In the eyes of God, the whole human race is either in Adam or you're in Christ. 
Everybody falls into one of those two categories. Now, what do I mean? Those that are in Adam are those that have never been saved. When it talks about those in Adam, it's talking about those that have never been born again. Those that are in Adam are those that's never been redeemed. On the other hand, those that are in Christ are those that are saved. Now, everybody tonight in this room, again, I don't care who you are, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There's no in-between. You are in Adam, lost, or you're in Christ, saved. There's no button, there's no gray area there. You're either in one or two groups. And that's how God sees the whole human race. He sees everybody in a group. Another difference about how God looks at the human race is that when he looks at those in Adam, he says that in those in Adam die. But those that are in Christ are made alive. Now, when the Bible says that those in Adam all die, it is not referring to that moment that you actually die. It refers to a continuous process of dying. In other words, anybody that is lost, those that are in Adam, they're dying every day. Those that are in Adam, those that have never been born again, are in the process of dying, which will ultimately, which brings them closer every day to the ultimate final death. And the final death that I'm told about is not when we cease to exist in these bodies. The final death that I'm talking about is when you are eternally separated from God and that results in spending eternity in hell. I want you to understand something tonight. What is so terrible when a person dies that's in Adam is not the physical part of dying. That's not what is terrible. What is terrible for someone that is in Adam when they die is that when they die, there is the eternal death that follows. When the Bible talks about the wages of sin is death, that's what he's talking about. A person that is lost, if you die in Adam, having never been saved, there's nothing but an eternal hell that is in front of you. But on the other hand, those that are in Christ, they don't die. Those that are in Christ are made to live. Those that die in Adam die. They go to eternal death. But those that are in Christ, they live on for eternity in heaven. It's like Romans 8, 1 said, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I want you to understand something tonight. I ought to go to hell, but I want you to understand something. I may die physically, but don't you worry about me. I haven't died. I will never die. I will live on for eternity. Can I get an amen there? Those who are in Christ may have a physical death, but they will never experience an eternal death. For those in Christ shall all be made alive. We've been given eternal life in Christ. We have, there will be no eternal death. We are alive in Christ. So I ask you tonight, are you, are you in Adam? Are you in Christ? Have you been saved or are you lost? Are you bound for hell or are you bound for heaven? It all depends on whether or not you're in Christ or whether or not you're in Adam. Again, everybody here tonight, you're in one of two groups. If you're in Adam, you're lost, and there's eternal death out there. But if you're in Christ, you're saved, and there's eternal life out there. You're in one of two groups. I think about a story I read about a party of climbers. All of them were roped together, and they were making their way along this narrow snow ridge high up in the Alps. And the leader, the first man, slipped and fell over the edge of the precipice. The rope attached to him jerked the man behind him off of his feet and following and so on. And each of the party except the last man was dragged over the edge. The last man happened to be an experienced climber. 
And he had time between the first slip under the rope tightened around his own body to plunge his ice axe axe deeply in the snow, dig his heels in the snow, embrace himself for the coming strain. And when it reached him, he held firm. And for a short time, here they were, every man except one, hanging out over a threatening death thousands of feet below them. Then the first man climbed over the man in front of him and over him and over him till he got back up and the man behind him followed until every one of them managed to climb to safety. And I read that story and I thought, that's exactly what Jesus did. You see, the first Adam slipped over the precipice of eternal death and the result was he dragged all mankind down with him. But there was one who held the rope and Jesus Christ enabled mankind to climb to safety. When he rose again, Jesus became the promise that those who are in him will not have eternal death, but they'll have eternal life. So it is a guaranteed resurrection, a group resurrection. God looks at everybody. He sees you in one or two groups. But look at something else about this group resurrection. Not only do you see how God recognizes each group in Adam or in Christ, but when God resurrects each group. Notice in verse 23. We read these words, but every man in his own order. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Every man in his own order. He's just said everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to be raised, but in their own order. Now, the word order that is used there is a word that means to place or to station a person or a thing in a fixed spot. It was used in those days as a military term describing the separation of soldiers into detachments. Sometimes it was used to describe Israel when they packed up there and began to march in the wilderness. Everyone had their own particular place that they were assigned to by tribes. And so they had this group and this group and this group and this group. They each marched in order. And the Bible tells us here that everybody's going to die, everybody's going to be raised, but in their own group or in their own order. What am I talking about? The Bible tells us that every person in Adam and every person in Christ, saved or lost, one of these days is going to be resurrected. That's something everybody shares in common. Everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Both groups are going to experience a resurrection from the dead, but the when and the time of each group is absolutely different. Each group is going to be resurrected in their own order. For example, Acts 24, 15, listen. The Bible said, There shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. In other words, Acts is telling us that the just is going to be resurrected, the unjust is going to be resurrected. Now, when? Look at verse 23. Paul tells us that those that are in Christ, he tells us when they're going to be resurrected. We read, Christ the firstfruits, meaning he'll be the first one, Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Christ is the first in the long line. He will be the first one raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead. And afterward, those that are his are going to be resurrected at his coming. You see that in verse 23? You know when the resurrection believer will take place? It'll take place at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like that beloved passage. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Listen to me. One of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come back again. And when Christ comes back again, there is going to be a resurrection. That word coming was sometimes used to speak of an invasion of a province by some general. And it was a word that described the entrance on the scene of a new and a conquering power, bringing in a new order. Praise God, there's one coming one of these days. It's coming on the scene. And I believe in the very near future, it's going to bring a new order on this earth. And when he comes, those that have died in Christ are going to be raised. It is the promise of his resurrection. I never preach a funeral. I got a funeral tomorrow of a lady. 59, 60 years old, visit here on and off through the years, and I'll preach her funeral tomorrow. I never close out a funeral that I don't say something about the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. For what a comfort it is to know that our beloved, our loved ones, that they're going to get up out of the grave one of these days. Their bodies are going to be raised. Everybody in the group in Christ is going to be resurrected at the coming of Jesus Christ. But look at something else in verse 24. He also hints at when the group in Adam will be resurrected. For we read these words, then cometh the end. See that statement? He tells us, first of all, Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one in a long line, of, in an order of a line of things. And afterwards, they that are Christ are going to be resurrected His coming. And then he said, then cometh the end. Now, when he talks about the end, he's not talking about the end of time, the termination of time, like everything all of a sudden shuts down. But it's, the word speaks of the completion, the conclusion of something at which there had been a goal. It'd be like we talk about the end of the war all along fighting. It was not a goal uh, to always fight. When you have a battle, a war, there's a goal to end the war, the end of the war, or the end of the race. Like there's been a race, the goal is to win the race and the conclusion of that race. When Paul talks about the then come at the end, he's talking about there's a goal out there, and there's a series of events that leads to that goal, and one day we'll actually reach that goal to which all these things are aiming at. What is he talking about? When he talks about then cometh the end. Paul is describing the hour when those that are in Adam are going to be resurrected. You say, Brother Ken, I have never heard that there's going to be a resurrection of the lost. Turn your Bible to Revelation 20. Look in Revelation chapter 20. I thought only a Christian's going to be resurrected. That's where you're wrong. Everybody's going to be resurrected. In Revelation chapter 20, we find the end of these events. The beginning of these events is the resurrection of the believer. Christ will come back again. And that will kick off a series of events that has one goal in mind, and that's to reach one ultimate matter, which we'll look at in just a moment. But there's a series of events, and it will conclude Revelation chapter 20, telling us there's going to be a resurrection of the lost, those that are in Adam. Look at verse 5, Revelation 20, verse 5. But the rest of the dead live not again until a thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the reference to the first resurrection speaks of those in Christ, those who were saved. They've been resurrected. They've been raised. This is the first resurrection. Here are folks that have already been resurrected. Look at verse 6. 
Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. For on the self such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. He tells us those that have a part in the first resurrection have no part in the second death. Now what is meant by the phrase second death? What is meant by that is that there is somebody, somebody's going to die again. Somebody's died once. Now they're going to have to die again. Who's, who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about those that are lost. Revelation 20 beginning in verse 11. He describes a scene when everybody that is lost, that is dying without God and went to hell, are going to be resurrected from hell. They're going to be resurrected from the dead. They're going to be resurrected from hell. And they'll stand before God. Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne. Him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things that were written in the books according to their works. Look at this. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their words. You listen to me. Everybody's in two, one or two groups. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Those that are in Christ are going to be resurrected at his coming unto life. But those who die in Adam, that the, when it comes to the end, a series of events comes to a conclusion, then God is going to see, is going to give up the dead. Death and hell is going to give up everybody in the grave and in hell, and they're going to stand before God to be judged by God, to stand before God, to face God, and to be judged by God. That is sometimes called the second resurrection. Now, when I think about these two resurrections, those who are resurrected in Christ and those that are resurrected in Adam, I want you to know, thank God I'm in Christ Jesus. And he talks about they'll be cast in the lake of fire. Look at verse 14 and 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's my grandson. He's crying because he don't want his mama to be in Adam anymore. Amen. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It's almost like this. It's like those in Adam died. And when they died, they went to hell. But there'll be a short reprieve from their hell, for God is going to raise them up out of hell, resurrect them, it's merely to judge them, and then they got to die again. And this time they're cast into the lake of fire. Two groups, two resurrections. But thank God I'm in the first resurrection. Amen? When I think about dying, I realize this body may expire one day, but I'll live on for eternity. But those that are in Adam that are lost, when they die, they'll go to hell and they'll be raised out of hell and they'll be judged and put right back into hell again, the second death. I am glad, thanks be to God, that I've been saved by the grace of God. I'll be in the first resurrection. Look at the third and the final thing. Not only is it a guaranteed resurrection and a group resurrection, but a glorious resurrection. For you see, the glory of the resurrection is not only what it would mean to the believer, but what it would mean for Christ. For in verse 24, Paul describes what will follow our resurrection. Paul tells us the resurrection will be a glorious matter, for afterward, 
Christ is going to reign. Look what he said in verse 24. He talks about first the establishment of his reign. Then cometh the end. There'll be the conclusion of a series of events, a goal that is in mind. What is the goal? That Christ reign. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father. Now follow me for just a moment. When Jesus Christ comes again, the first thing that will happen will be the resurrection of those in Christ. After the resurrection of those in Christ, there will be a short period of time, about seven years, called the tribulation period. At the end of those seven years, there will be a thousand years that Christ is going to rule and reign on this earth. As Luke said, he will sit upon the throne of his father David. And after that 1,000 years, after the dead are resurrected and then cast in the lake of the fire, lake of fire is going to deliver up the kingdom to the father. Verse 25 said he must reign. And there are three musts in the Bible. He must rise he must return and he must reign and what this what i'm saying is that one of these days christ is going to rule and reign upon this earth our resurrection kicks it all off and it'll conclude with christ being lord over all the earth now you think about that this world we live in they don't recognize him they don't honor him they don't bow to his lordship they don't recognize his lordship. But one of these days, every nation is going to bow the knee and the tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every God-hater, every Christ-rejecter, every atheist, every infidel, every agnostic is going to acknowledge that he's Lord. He's going to reign one of these days. The establishment of his reign. Look at the effect of his reign secondly. For you find that the effects of his reign are many. You read in verse 24 that he'll put down all rule and all authority and power. Verse 25, we read that he'll put all enemies under his feet. Again, every Christ-rejecting nation is going to bow under his lordship. Every God-hating nation is going to bow under his lordship. Uh, Sodom Hussein is going to bow to his lordship. Every nation, every Muslim, Farrakhan, every one of them, they're all going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He'll put, even put Satan under his feet. Verse 26 tells us even death is going to be eliminated. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Can you think about that? A day when there'll no longer be any death. Death is abolished. Death is wiped away. Every foe, every enemy, every adversary will be conquered. Verse 27, he has put all things under his feet. On that day, verse 27 says, it is manifested that he is accepted. That's a great statement. On that day, it is going to be manifested, made known and revealed that he is Lord. He is Christ. He will reign. And he'll be revealed as Lord of lords. It'll be a glorious resurrection. Are you listening to me? It's a guaranteed resurrection. It's a group resurrection. It is a glorious resurrection. Thank God, ain't no, ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Let's stand our feet, please.